Welcome to the Littlestown Chapel podcast. Make sure to check us out on the web at littlestownchapel.org. Now, we hope you enjoy this message by Pastor Scott Morgan. So last week we unveiled the vision that we believe God is calling our church to pursue in the years to come. And we introduced this as a product of the elders of the church praying and seeking and discussing God's will and talking and debating among ourselves and getting outside input and doing test runs with introducing it to different folks and asking for feedback. And in the process of doing all that, we we came to the conclusion that we really believe God is is calling us as a church to to really just one summary statement. Simply, we want to try to reach over a thousand people with the gospel over the next 10 years, 1030 by 2030. And in the process, we have a set of pillars or goals that are part of the vision, if you want to say it that way, to help us accomplish that in the short term. We gave you a card last week, and some of you weren't able to be here, and we handed them out again. And if you didn't get one, make sure you pick one up before you leave today that just tells us that really this is all about that others may live, so that others may truly meet Christ and experience his forgiveness and love and eternal life in relationship with him. The back of the card gives a very concise summary of the different aspects of the vision as well to help us understand and how to live it and apply it in our lives as well. And I encourage you to take this card, put it in a prominent place where you would see it every day, just to remember to pray for it. Maybe that's in your Bible where you have, you know, mark the place where you're having your daily devotions, or maybe it's on the refrigerator or on the, you know, the console of your car, whatever it might be, just to to constantly take these things to the Lord and just say, I want to be part of this, and I'm praying that God would work in my life and, and help me with that. And we pointed out that last week there were a couple things about each one of these goals or pillars of the vision, components of the vision that we wanted you to understand. And that is we wanted you to understand that there were already teams of people working to develop and, and work to accomplish these goals in our church family. We have folks that are already dreaming and praying and working and planning for things that we could do to help make these things become a reality because really a, a dream without a plan is just an idea, it's just a thought and we wanna see these dreams become reality by the grace of God. So with a humble dependence on God and relying on His grace through the power of His Spirit, we believe that there are things that we need to be working on together as a church family to help see these things come about. We also said that we were gonna take time over the next several weeks and then unpack the significance of each one of these goals so that we can get a better picture of what they're, what they're all about. Because I admit that we kind of raced through them last week and it would be easy to go, huh, what was that again? And almost feel like a little bit of whiplash as we were looking at that and thinking about it. If you missed last Sunday, I encourage you to go online to littlestownchapel.org, look up in the sermon archive, and consider watching last week's message, the video of the, of the message. And consider watching that just to kind of give you an idea of really what this is all about and kind of experience it as we were sharing it in our first service last week as, as well. I think that would be a benefit to you. Now, this week, what we're focusing on is this idea of what do we do to build 
a better community here in our church family? What do we do to, to develop a stickiness about our church where people feel like they are welcomed and included, a place where they belong, where people know your name, as, the, as, as Cheers, the, the sitcom used to say, where everybody knows your name, where you feel like you belong, where you feel like you're loved, where you can be included. How do we develop that? How do we become better at doing that? And one of the ways that we believe that we can be better at that is if we are truly working and intentionally striving to double and increase the number of growth groups that we have. Growth groups are our small group ministry here at Littlestown Chapel. And so what can we do to help people enter into relationships with friends, spiritual friends, Christian friends, and, and learn how to really care for one another? to be there for one another, to pray for one another, love one another, bless one another, help bear one another's burdens, to encourage and even correct, if necessary, one another when we're going off course. How, how do we do that? And, and the way we do that is by building these small communities of believers, like many churches in a sense, little families of believers, where we can be encouraging and helping one another in this way. A third thing that we mentioned that we would be talking about this Sunday and the coming Sundays is as we, as we unpack each one of these goals of the vision, the visionary components, we said that we would be going back to the life of Peter and focusing on the, one of the earliest disciples of Jesus and lessons that he learned and how he was able to discover God's plan for his life and his relationship with Jesus. And I think there's things about Peter's life that mirrors some of the things that we're trying to accomplish here at the church as well. And last week we told the story about Peter getting out of the boat and walking on the water as Jesus was walking on the water and how that, that's the antidote to the fear that we have, learning to keep our eyes on Jesus and focus on him. You know, in a sense, he had a vision, Peter did. If Jesus is walking on the water, I can get out of the boat and walk on the water with him because I can do his work and do his will. And so I'm willing to try that. I'm willing to take a risk to do that. But when he focused on the circumstances that he was in, he began to sink. He began to drown. And all he could do was cry out, Lord, save me, which is a wonderful thing to pray whenever you're in a mess. Lord, save me. Please do that. Okay. But in all of that, Jesus says, you've got little faith. Not no faith, but your faith is little. Take that little faith you have and focus it on me. And if your faith is focused on me, you will be able to do everything that I call you to do. And the vision that I have for your life that I've given you will become a reality. You'll be able to do the work that I've called you to do. Today, we want to shift gears a little bit and go even earlier in Peter's story of his relationship with Jesus and talk about probably the first time Peter ever met Jesus. And that's a picture of this whole idea of entering into a community of the followers of Jesus and how we need to stay connected to one another. Now, it's important for us to understand that community is not an option. Community is something that we desperately need. I, I appreciate this quotation from Eugene Peterson, who was a great Bible teacher and professor, a spiritual director. He was very, very influential in the lives of many Christians over the last several decades. He recently passed away. But he made this very profound observation. Listen to this. This is what Eugene Peterson said. There can be no maturity in the spiritual life, no obedience in following Jesus, 
no wholeness in the Christian life apart from an immersion in and an embrace of community. I am not myself by myself. I am not myself by myself. That seems a bit shocking and hard to believe because a lot of us, you know, if you're a busy mom and the kids have been running around you all day and you finally get to bed, what's one of the first things that you probably think or say? Finally, ah, some me time. Give me some tea. Let me find that book I really want to read or, or that TV show or adult conversation with my spouse. You're around people on the job. You're answering questions. You're talking with them. You're helping with them. And you finally get home and you're just saying, I just, I just want to chill. I don't want to talk to anybody. I need some me time. We've all had experiences like that. Talk to me at 2 o'clock on Sunday afternoon and I'll tell you, I need some me time because I've been talking to everybody at the church. I'm talked out. And we laugh and, and, and I don't know that Dawn always laughs, but I laugh about it and things like that. But we all have that experience in our lives. I need some me time. We think that we're really ourselves, that we're most like ourselves when we're by ourselves. And that's not true. In fact, you can't be yourself by yourself. You need to be in community with other people. You need others. We were made to have fellowship with others. Yes, we need alone time. Yes, we need rest and solitude. Yes, we need to pray without distraction. We need some times of silence. Of course, we need those things. But we need community. And even the most introvertish of us need community. Even those of us who are so shy and very independent and self-sufficient and lone rangers. We need community. We need to be with other believers because we'll never be ourselves the way God intends us to be if we're not connected to other believers. And so we're saying as part of our vision, we are gathering, we are connecting to grow. There is no growth, there is no maturity, there is no obedience, there is no growth in Christ-likeness without being connected with other believers. And this is really the, the, the foundation for this whole idea of this goal of trying to double the number of our growth groups. It's, it's really about recognizing that Christ changes lives in community. And that's why we need other believers. It's not enough just to come to church and sit in a worship service, and that's wonderful. I'm so glad you're here today. But there's something involved, something more beneficial when we actually hook up and link up and join arms and get on our knees together and pray and work and serve and teach and learn from one another in a small group, a small community. Christ changes lives in community. And that's why we make community a big deal, one of the foundation points of our church life and structure. And it's why it's the first mark, the first component of our vision. How do we become a sticky church where everyone feels welcomed, loved, and included, and noticed, where everybody can learn that they matter? It's in community. There's been research done why you and I love friendships why we need friendships. We need that companionship, just doing life together. 
And the reason why companionship is so valuable, why it's so meaningful, makes us feel so happy, is because we're recognizing that we matter to somebody else. I have value and worth, not just to me, but they think I'm important too because they're willing to spend time with me. They're willing to listen to me. They're willing to pray with me and talk with me and laugh with me and hear my corny jokes and do all this kind of stuff. And they're willing to call me on the carpet if necessary to help me be a better person. I matter to them. That's why we love friendship and need friendship so desperately. And that's why we need community. Because Christ changes lives in community. Now Peter experienced community in a way that was new and fresh when he met Jesus. And I would like to show you this whole episode where Jesus meets Peter and Peter meets Jesus. But not just Peter meeting Jesus, but Peter's brother Andrew and a friend John and some other guys, Philip and Nathaniel as well. And how Jesus begins to call a group of men to follow him and be in community with him and then he leads them out. And Peter's right in the thick of this. And even though he was a strong, independent kind of guy, he desperately needed community as well. So would you take your Bible, please, and turn to the Gospel of John, chapter 1. This is a John, one of the disciples of Jesus, his biography of Jesus, if you will, a, a, a story that is to challenge us to have a personal relationship with Jesus ourselves. And I'm on page, if you'd like to use one of the Bibles from church, it's on page 886, 8. 886. It's John chapter 1 is where we're going to be reading. I'm going to start reading in verse 35. John chapter 1, verse 35. The next day, John, that's John the Baptist, was standing with two of his disciples. And he looked at Jesus as he walked by and said, Behold, the Lamb of God. The two disciples heard him say this, and they followed Jesus. Jesus turned and saw them following and said to them, What are you seeking? And they said to him, Rabbi, which means teacher, where are you staying? And he said to them, Come, and you will see. So they came and saw where he was staying, and they stayed with him that day, for it was about the tenth hour. One of the two who heard John speak and followed Jesus was Andrew, Simon Peter's brother. He first found his own brother Simon and said to him, We have found the Messiah, which means Christ. He brought him to Jesus. Jesus looked at him and said, You are Simon, the son of John. You will be called Cephas, which means Peter. The next day, Jesus decided to go to Galilee. He found Philip and said to him, follow me. Now, Philip was from Bethesda, the city of Andrew and Peter. Philip found Nathanael and said to him, we have found him of whom Moses in the law and also the prophets wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. Nathanael said to him, can anything good come out of Nazareth? Philip said to him, come and see. Jesus saw Nathanael coming toward him and said of him, Behold, an Israelite indeed in whom there is no deceit. Nathanael said to him, How do you know me? Jesus answered him, Before Philip called you when you were under the fig tree, I saw you. Nathanael answered him, Rabbi, you are the Son of God. You are the King of Israel. 
Jesus answered him, because I said to you, I saw you under the fig tree, do you believe? You will see greater things than these. And he said to him, truly, truly, I say to you, you will see heaven opened and the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. This is God's word. Now in this encounter that we read about here of of Jesus and Peter meeting and, and Andrew and Philip and Nathaniel and another disciple. In all of this, Jesus is collecting these men and inviting these men to join a community with him and to spend time with him and be with them. And the reason he's doing this is he's in the process of changing their lives. And he's gonna turn them from being fishers of fish into becoming fishers of men. And he's going to turn them from being just guys who are loyal Jews to actually becoming followers of God and part of his family, the family of God and the kingdom of God. He's going to transform these men's lives and he's going to do it through a relationship with him and with one another because you can't be yourself by yourself. It's when we're in community that Christ transforms our lives. And so what we notice here is that there's Jesus and he's being introduced to the disciples of John the Baptist. John was a preacher, a relative of Jesus. He was like a prophet, a preacher out in the wilderness and he's preparing people for the coming of the Jewish Messiah, the Jewish king who would come and rule over them. And in the process of doing that, there were fellows that began following John and one day John sees Jesus and he says, there's the Lamb of God. There's the one I've been talking about. He's going to take away the sins of the world. He is going to come and he's going to give you a relationship with God that you cannot have on your own because of the problem of sin and shame and guilt that all of us have. John, that's what John is saying when he calls Jesus the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world, the sins of everybody, if we're willing to trust in him. Now, by calling Jesus the Lamb of God, he's making an allusion to... The fact that in the Old Testament law, it taught that you used a lamb and offered the lamb as a sacrifice for the forgiveness of sins. And so there's the story of Passover in the Old Testament, uh, in the book of Exodus, and the lamb had to be slaughtered there for the Israelites to be protected from the, the plague of death that came upon the Egyptians. And Isaiah chapter 53 talks about the Messiah, the suffering servant, like the lamb of God who gives his life so we could be rescued. He was taken as a lamb to the slaughter and yet he didn't argue and protest he willingly laid down his life for others so that we could be reconciled to God these are ideas that John's referencing when he calls Jesus the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world and these two disciples they recognize that because of what John is saying about Jesus hey we need to start following Jesus John was willing to hand off his own followers to Jesus because that's who everybody's supposed to follow not John but Jesus it's kind of a reminder of us is that we're trying to connect people to Jesus we want to win people to Jesus we want to help them begin following Jesus it's not about them connecting with us it's about connecting with Jesus that's what this is all about And so John is handing off his disciples to Jesus and it says that these two disciples start following Jesus. One of them is by the name of Andrew. And the other fella is not named. But I have a strong idea, a big hunch as to who he really is. I think it's John, the writer of this gospel, because 
John often describes himself in this gospel. He doesn't use, I was there. He says the disciple whom Jesus loved was there or another disciple was there. And he's being modest and not calling attention to himself. And I think it's an indication. He's, he's kind of using that there was Andrew and then there was this other disciple. And the writer is including all these details like they met Jesus at 10, the 10th hour, which is 4 o'clock in the afternoon. And there's just all these details. It's like somebody was there as an eyewitness. And I think John is the fellow that's following Jesus along with Andrew, to be honest with you. That's my opinion on this. So there's Andrew and John, and they are starting to follow Jesus. And whenever you read in John's gospel that someone is following Jesus, it's not just, well, there's Jesus at the front of the line, everybody's just kind of marching behind him like that, like you follow the clerk at the store, you know, the grocery store, you're trying to find something on the shelves. I don't know if any other men do that, but I get to the store and there's so many choices, I don't know where to find stuff. And so I always go to the services, can you show me where this and this item is? Yes, it's on aisle four, left-hand side on the bottom shelf. Or someone takes me there and shows me. And I appreciate that. So I just follow them very dutifully like a little dog. Yeah, I'm okay. There it is. Thank you very much. And just follow. You could say that that's what the disciples were doing. They were just following Jesus. You know, I'm going to go this way and not that way. So they just went. But there's something more in John's gospel when it says that people follow Jesus. It was always with this idea of being a disciple, an apprentice, a student, a pupil of Jesus. I'm going to be with you and learn with you. We're going to do life together. And as we do life together and I listen to you and we share these experiences, as we do things together and have this companionship of community, I'm going to learn what you have for me by being with you, life upon life. I'm going to see what that's like and I'm really going to get to know you. And so it says that Andrew and John, these two disciples, they begin following Jesus. And Jesus looks around at them and says, what are you guys seeking? It's kind of like someone saying, what do you want? <laughs> what do you want? And this is one of those questions that kind of has a double-edged meaning. Because on the one hand, he might be just simply saying, what do you want? You know, what, what are you looking for? But it also has a deeper message where it's like, what do you really want out of life? What is it that you're really looking for? Why are you following me? What is it that you want? And if Andrew and John and the readers of this book are willing to reflect on that and think about that, then they can begin to understand that Jesus is what they really want. That He is the one who really can meet their needs satisfy their thirst and fill up their hunger that he is really what they're seeking for and since Jesus is testing John and Andrew what are you looking for are you really looking for me do you really want to know God's will through me do you really want me what are you looking for but it's interesting a lot of us when we're confronted with those heavy questions and we're surprised we're caught off guard and I get the idea that it says, as it says there, what are you seeking, Jesus asked. And they said to him, Rabbi, which is a term of great respect. It means literally my teacher or my great one. And John translates it here as teacher. Rabbi, teacher, my, my teacher, where are you staying? Of all the things that they could answer Jesus, what they're seeking for in life, all they can do is kind of stammer, uh, uh, where are you spending the night, Jesus? 
Where, 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 where are you staying? If it's not too much of an inconvenience, we'd, we'd like to be with you. We want to spend time with you. We want to be with you to learn from you and share life with you. Can we come? Can we tag along? Can we be with you? And Jesus answers. He's not put off. He's not worried about me time. He answers them by saying, come and see. Come and see. Come and you will see. Come and be with me and you will see where I'm staying. And it says that they followed him and they actually stayed with him. It was four o'clock in the afternoon, the 10th hour, and they choose to stay. They abide with him and remain with him. Jesus changes our lives when we're in community with him and others. And he does that by furnishing a personal relationship with him in the process. This is how he begins to change our lives. He doesn't give Jesus doesn't give Andrew and John information. I'm staying at 123 Main Street. You know, all the rooms are filled. Sorry, guys. He doesn't say that. He doesn't, I'm getting ready to travel to another town and, you know, just GPS it and you can find me. Here's the address. He says, just come with me. Be with me. Come along. I'm I'm walking and you'll see where I'm going and you can spend time with me. Jesus is constantly inviting his people to spend time with him, to be with him, to rub shoulders with him, to learn from him, to interact with him, to do life with him as he's revealed himself on the pages of his word. We step into community and Christ begins to change our lives in that community as we share life with Him. We enter a relationship with Him. And that is what Andrew and John discovered. It's interesting, it's repeated several times in this paragraph that Andrew and John, that other disciple, they followed Jesus. It's repeated like three times. They followed, they were following, they followed again. And it's just emphatic. They made a choice to come after Jesus and live life with him at his invitation. And then they hear Jesus say, come and you will see. If you follow me, you will see. Come along with me and you will see what I have for you and what life is all about. And it says that they stayed with him, that they remained with him. And the word that he uses there in the original language is the same word that he'll use in chapter 15 when Jesus at the very end of his ministry, the night before he's arrested and put on trial and ultimately crucified on the cross for our sins. Before all that takes place, Jesus is in the upper room eating the last supper, a Passover meal with his disciples. And as the conversation Proceeds, and as they're moving from the dinner place to the Garden of Gethsemane where he's going to pray, he's talking to them and he's saying, look, you've got to stay connected to me. I'm like a vine and you are like branches. And unless you stay connected to me, you will never share my life. And if you're broken off like a, a dead branch, you're going to wither. There's no life, there's no sap, there's no energy, there's no nutrients coming from me to you unless you remain connected to me. But if you stay connected to me, you will be fruitful. You will experience life to the fullest. You'll have life with meaning and purpose. You'll be fully satisfied. 
And beyond all that, your life will be such a life that other people will be touched and blessed by you. They'll be led to me, to be connected with me, and you'll grow in such a way that your life will be abundant and overflowing. But you've got to stay, remain with me. And that's what Jesus is saying here to the disciples. Come stay with me. And they stayed. It's a picture of discipleship, to follow him, to see where he leads, and then stay connected with him. It's almost like at the very beginning of John's gospel, he's giving us a pattern for how to grow in Christ and have a relationship with him. You follow him, you make that choice to trust him and follow him, and then you see where he leads you and experience life with him, but you stay there and you don't desert, and you don't run away, and you don't check out, and you don't get distracted. You stay close and connected to him by faith and obedience, and you share his life. The big thing that I want you to understand as we read this story at the very beginning is simply this, is that to have the community that transforms our lives, we start off in community with Christ. And you have a relationship with Him. And we share His life. But it's interesting, it's not just Andrew by himself, and it's not just John by himself, but together they share that life. And it goes beyond that because in verse 40 it says that one of the two that heard John speak and began following Jesus was Andrew. He's Simon Peter's brother. Now John's writing this story about Jesus, kind of giving this account in his biography of Jesus. It's nearly 60 years later after Jesus' life and death and resurrection. And as John's thinking about that, he says, I want you to understand who those earliest disciples were. One was Andrew. He's Simon Peter's brother. Everybody in the early church understood who Simon Peter was. He was such a great leader. Somebody that God really used to help get the early church started around the world. And it says here that that this Simon Peter, rather Andrew, he first found his own brother, Simon. Simon. He made it his business. He said, I, this life I have with Jesus, this community with Jesus, I can't keep to myself. It's not just about me and what I get out of it. I want other people to share it too. I want to open the doors. I want to include others. I want to expand the boundaries and let other people be involved. And he starts out by going and getting Peter, his, excuse me, his brother Simon. Simon. And he says, we found the Messiah. And John, as he's writing this, understands that a lot of his readers are from a non-Jewish background. So he says, I just want you to know that the, the Greek word that's used for Messiah is the Christ or Christos. We have found the Messiah. You might be wondering, what does the name Messiah mean? Why does Andrew call Jesus the Messiah? The Messiah was the hope, the person that God promised that he would send to the people of Israel. He had given them laws to keep and fulfill, but that would never give them a relationship with God. They needed someone to come and be the intermediary, somebody to open the door, to bridge the gap and make it possible to have a relationship with God, to do for them what they could not do for themselves. And so he said, I'm sending the Messiah. The Messiah was the anointed one. That's what the word Christ means. The Messiah means Hebrew and the Greek. They mean the anointed one. And the picture here, 
much like we read in Psalm 133 earlier, the picture here is, is that in the Old Testament, when somebody was chosen by God to do his work, they would pour oil, fragrant oil on their head as part of the inauguration ceremony, so to speak, for that individual. And so if, if, if a prophet was chosen, oil was poured on the head of that man before they went out and began prophesying and preaching God's word. And the priest, the high priest, they poured oil on the head of the high priest, symbolically showing that that person had been chosen by God and God's spirit was upon him and that he would lead people into the presence of God through the worship and the sacrifices. And the king himself, it was not just that he was born into the royal family and now was heir to the throne and ascends to the throne because his father has died. It was bigger than that. There was this ceremony, an investure, where they would actually pour oil on the head of the king, the newly crowned king. And it was a reminder that God's spirit was on him too, just like it was on the priest and just like the spirit was upon the prophet. And the thing that's interesting, the Messiah, who is a prophet, who is a priest, who is a king, has the anointing of God, God's spirits on him in a way that he's more than a king and more than a prophet and more than a priest. He's everything we need. And that is what Andrew is saying to Simon, his brother. We have found the Messiah, the anointed one, the one who can meet all our needs, the one who can be our savior, the one who is the king who wants to rule over our lives and bring in the kingdom of God, the one we've been looking for. We found him at last. Here, let me introduce you to him. And it says that Andrew took Simon and brought him to Jesus, led him to Jesus. And listen to what Jesus says to Peter. Beyond just the, how do you do? Nice to meet you. Uh, what town are you from? Oh, yeah, you're, you're, you're from Capernaum, uh, I'm Bethesda. I, I'm from Nazareth, just up the, up the hill from you guys. And beyond all the small talk, listen to what Jesus says to Simon. You are Simon, the son of John. I know you by name. I know who you are. You shall be called Cephas. And John says, well, I've never heard the name Cephas before. Some of the Greek elite readers would not know. And so he says, it means Peter. Simon gets the name Peter from Jesus. And so this Simon is now called Simon Peter. And Peter is a name, both in Aramaic, the Cephas name, and Greek, the Peter name. It's, it's the idea of someone who's a rock, a rock person, a rock man, rocky. Seriously. It's, it's the idea of somebody who would be strong and stable. Somebody who, who's not brittle and easily broken, not somebody who is temperamental and easily flustered, but somebody who is stable and strong. And the thing is, is if you read the life of Peter in the Gospels, he's anything but that. He makes bold promises, rash promises. He's impulsive. Hey, Call me to get out of the boat and walk on the water. I mean, just kind of impulsive like that. He says, I'll never deny you even though everybody else denies you. Uh, he, 
he tells Jesus, you know, Jesus, you say you're going to die, but that's not true. The, the Lord will never let you die. And Jesus has to say, how's this for a compliment? Get behind me, Satan. <laughs> How would you like one of your friends to tell you that? Get thee behind me, Satan. And Jesus has to tell Peter that. Peter winds up denying Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane. He runs, winds up running away. He winds up getting so angry in that moment, he pulls out a sword and chops off a guy's ear. Thankfully, Jesus is there because he fixes that by healing the guy's ear and putting it back in place without superglue. Peter's this very impulsive, angry, bitter, some bit, just flighty in some ways, easily upset, explosive, temperamental individual. And yet Jesus gives him a name that he can grow into. Jesus calls Peter in such a way that Peter can become what he's been called. Now you think about it when you gave your children the names they have and you know, when you're thinking about the children that you're going to have and you're dreaming of names, oh, I like the sound of this name or I like that name and maybe there's a relative that you name them after. Maybe there's just a, oh, my friend had the name and that was just such a pretty name. I want that name. And some of us actually think about meanings of names when we name our children. And Peter's not, uh, Jesus is not just saying, you know, I'm going to start calling you Peter, Rocky, not just because that's a nickname that Peter grew up with or he had chiseled features. It's because I believe you can grow into this. And even if you're not this way now, you can become this if you stick with me. You see, when we're in community with Jesus and other disciples, when we're in community with other people, he refines us, he chisels us, he shapes us and molds us to become what he's called us to be. He gives us an identity that we can grow into. And you say, well, you know, he did that with Peter. I don't know that he would do that with me. But the fact is, he does do that. You and I are in community with other believers and we begin to notice... <laughs> I'm sorry, when I hang around with other Christians, I begin to notice not just how sinful they are, but how sinful I am. My children had a way of doing that to me. It made me notice how sinful and selfish I truly was because I was acting bad toward them. I've noticed that in relationships with other people as well, that there are times that I'm, I'm easily angered or irritable or bitter. And why? Because I'm with other people. Maybe I just need some more me time. But no, I think God is saying, no, you actually need more other time. Because we want to deal with this bitterness and this anger so that you can grow in to be the loving person I've called you to be. I'm struggling with these addictions, these habits, these, these things, you know, gluttony, bitterness. I'm struggling with pornography or, or lust. I'm struggling with, you know, greed, whatever it might be. And, and, and it's like other people bring it out of me. I get so mad and irritable and, and it feels so needy. And what God would want us to know, Jesus would want us to know is just, you know what, I can, I can use them to expose this in you so that you can come to me and deal with it. And in community, I can help you overcome it. But if you stay in isolation, you'll never change. You'll never grow out of it. You'll never get the help you need.
You see, when you and I are afraid, he wants us to remember that he's called us to have courage, that we can do all things through Christ who gives us strength, that he'll never leave us or forsake us. And in community, I learned that I can trust him and be encouraged to persevere even when I'm afraid. And when we're, we're feeling like we're not worth anything and we don't have any value and no one notices us or we've been put down or ridiculed by other people in our lives, it's in community as we trust in Jesus that we learn that we have the identity as God's beloved children and that we belong to him. And that regardless of what other people say about us and no matter how they devalue us, the truth is we have value and worth not because of our performance but because of God's love for us. We belong to Him. And it's an identity that we grow into. And that growth takes place in community because we're with Jesus. And so here's Jesus. He's beginning to call this community of believers. And there's Andrew, and there's John, and now there's Peter or Rocky. And he's right there with Jesus as well. And Peter doesn't say anything here. He's, he's, he's been given this name and, and Jesus is trying to say, Simon, I want you to know you may be flighty, impulsive, unstable right now, but I'm going to make you rock solid firm. I see what can happen in your life if you just would stay with me. I can make you rock solid as a leader in the church if you would just trust in me and lean on me. And the thing is, is Peter does that, and so does Andrew, and so does John, because they start following Jesus, and they begin moving along, and Jesus has said, come, and you will see, follow me. And these men start doing that, and, and as they're, Jesus is getting ready to travel north toward their hometowns, and along the way, it says in verse 43, that he sees another potential disciple, and he invites this man to follow him, his name is Philip. And Philip grew up in the same town as, Jesus, as Simon and Andrew. And Philip is excited about meeting Jesus and hearing all about Jesus that he goes and finds Nathanael. And he says to Nathanael, we found him of whom Moses and the law and the prophets wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. And I thank God for Nathanael because he is a cynic in all the best ways. He's asking good questions. He's not gullible. He's not just believing because you told me. He says, I want proof, I need evidence. And he says simply this, can anything good come out of Nazareth? Now it's not that Nazareth had a bad reputation, it just didn't have a reputation. It's a tiny little town. It's a little village on the side of a hill. And Bethesda and Cana and Capernaum were bigger towns. And Nathaniel's just saying, you're telling me that the Messiah, the promised Messiah, the anointed one that we've been waiting for, you're telling me he's come and he came from Nazareth? Are you kidding me? You can imagine somebody saying from Baltimore, they came from Littlestown? Are you kidding me? And that's kind of the attitude that Nathaniel has. He's being realistic. You're saying that this big Messiah has come from such a teeny tiny little speck of a town, the backside of nowhere. And thankfully, Philip is very wise and tactful, and he kind of learned this from Jesus, I'm sure. He just simply says, come and see. Check it out for yourself. 
Come and see. You know, we don't have to debate people and argue with people to persuade people. We just need to say, come and see. I'm telling you what I saw. I'm telling you what I've experienced. I'm telling you what I've learned. I'm not going to debate you and try to persuade you against your will. I'm just inviting you, come and see. And if they come, they will see and they will meet Jesus. And that's what Nathaniel does. And it says that when he was coming, as he was off in the distance, and as Jesus looks at him and perceives what's going on in his life, when Nathaniel gets close, he says to Nathaniel, I saw you. Oh, by the way, he says, you're an Israelite in whom there is no guile. There's no deceit or deception in you. You're an honest Israelite. You're a true Jew in the best way. And Nathaniel says, how do you know that about me? You, you say you know me? We've never met before. And Jesus says, I saw you, Nathaniel, while you were sitting under the fig tree before Philip even came and invited you to meet me. I saw you sitting there. Well, it must have been true because Nathaniel says, you, <laughs> you are my rabbi. You are my teacher now. You are the king of Israel. You are everything that we've been looking for. You are the son of God, he even says. And Jesus takes it a step further with Nathaniel, realizing Nathaniel's get, he gets what's going on. He's seeing the bigger picture. He challenges Nathaniel. He says, look, you, you're excited that I knew you ahead of time? You think that's great? Buddy, you ain't seen nothing yet. You'll see even greater things than these if you choose to follow me. And then in verse 51, he explains what he means. Truly, truly, I say to you. Now, literally what he says, it's like he gets his prayer backwards. We say amen at the end of a prayer. You know, in Jesus' name, amen. When we're finished, that's the signal to everybody at church that I'm done praying, that you can get up and go now. It's the signal that we can start eating after the blessing at dinner. Not really. It's a word that just simply means so be it. May this come about. Let it be so. Let it be true. May it come to pass. Amen. Jesus starts off his statement with amen, and he says it twice. Amen, amen, let it be so, let it be so. Surely, surely, truly, truly, I say to you, amen, amen. This is so serious. I am not pulling your leg. I am not leading you astray. This is the absolute truth, and this is what he says. You will see heaven opened and the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. You'll see heaven open up and you'll see angels going up and angels coming down from the very presence of God on me, the Son of Man. That was a, a way that Jesus would describe himself using a reference, reference from the, the story of Daniel in the Old Testament. Daniel's had a vision of seeing someone glorious with the power of God and he looked like the Son of Man and Jesus took that statement, that title, the Son of Man, and he applied it to himself and he's claiming to be the Messiah in the process as he does that. But he does it in a very subtle way without attracting a lot of attention because it almost sounds like he's saying, I'm just a man, I'm just a human but it's bigger than that. You're going to see on me angels going up and angels coming down. You're going to see the very presence of God. Now, some of you are thinking, angels going up, angels coming down, kind of like a staircase or a ladder, angels climbing, angels That sounds like a story I heard one time in the Old Testament. Hmm. What are you thinking of? How about Jacob's ladder? Remember that story? I think it's Genesis 28. 
Jacob is a, a son who's running away from home because he cheated his brother. And the brother, his brother Esau is so angry, Esau wants to kill Jacob. So Jacob is running away from home and he's running for his life and he's going to go far away to his uncle's place. And on the way, he decides to lay down and sleep for the night. And he uses his rock, a rock for a pillow. And I think anybody that uses a rock for a pillow must be very, very tired or, or very, very crazy and who knows what they'll dream. And he has a dream as he sleeps. And he dreams of a staircase or a ladder going up to the very throne room of God. And he sees the angels climbing up that ladder and climbing down that ladder from the very presence of God. And when Jacob wakes up in the morning, he is so overwhelmed with this dream, this vision that he has seen. And he says, this is Bethel. This is the house of God. Beth is the Hebrew word that's the idea of a house. And El is the name for God. Bethel, Bethel. It's the house of God. This is the portal to the very place of God. And I was sitting here, I was laying here, and I didn't even realize that I was in God's presence. And God is saying to Jacob, I'm going to be with you. As you journey away from here and live there and come back, I'm going to be with you and I'm going to bring you back to this place. Jesus uses that story and he uses it knowing that Nathaniel, a true Israelite, not a grasping, claim, uh, grabbing, tricking, lying Israelite like Jacob, he's a true Israelite. Nathaniel's going to understand this. And he's going to understand that the third way that God wants to change the people, Jesus can transform the people who are in community with him and with other believers. He says, I'm going to bring you access to God. I'm going to bring you into the very presence of God. And you're going to see the presence of God in my life right here and right now. I am Bethel. I am the presence of God. I am the temple of God. It's right here. It's not at the synagogue. It's not in Jerusalem. It's not some other holy site. It's me. You're in the presence of God when you're with me. And you're going to see the kingdom of God coming down and going up if you follow me. You're going to see God work in a mighty way in your presence. You'll have access to God all the time right now with me. You see, when you and I are in community, we're in the presence of God. When we're in community with the Lord. When you and I are in community with the Lord, we are growing into the identity that He gives us, that new name that He gives us as the children of God, as the new creations in Christ, as the friends of Christ. We're growing into that new identity. We have this relationship with him. We're not just students in a school learning something from a professor or a teacher, instructor. We're learning with him. We're sharing life with him. It's his life on our lives. And we're in that relationship with him. And in the process of being in that community with Jesus and his people, we're changed. Christ changes lives in community. He doesn't change your life online. He doesn't change your life in a class. He doesn't change your life by reading a book, although God will use all that stuff in your life. God has blessed books and seminars and online courses, certainly. But it's in community that all the rough edges are rubbed off. It's in community that we're really challenged. It's in community that we get the help 
that we desperately need. So what do we do in light of this? Well, I think one very obvious thing that we need to do is if you're not already part of a growth group, you should join one. And if you've been going to a growth group, you should keep going back and not quit, even when there's that other obnoxious person in your group, or when your schedule's really too full, or when the topic that they're studying isn't quite what you want to study. Because it's not just the topic that'll change your life, and it's not just that other person that will change your life, and it's not just the day of the week that will change your life, it's being in community. It's letting your life rub off on others and letting their lives rub off on you. And as together, you spend that time together with Christ, that's how your life will be transformed. And you'll become more like Jesus. You might think, I'll become more like Jesus if I just go to church more or if I just read the Bible more or if I just pray more. And you know what? Your life will change through those things. But it's in community that growth accelerates. That's when you step on the gas and you really go places. It's in community. Praying together, serving together, learning together, growing together, forgiving one another, loving one another, bearing each other's burden. It's being in community. You might say, but you know what? I'd like to go to a growth group, but they've already started and it's too late for me to join. And I would say that that's true. It's too late to jump right into another growth group. So I got a better idea. Why don't you start your own growth group? Why don't you invite someone else who's not part of a growth group, a friend that you see here, invite them to join you for coffee and talk together. I'm so blessed when I hear about men just meeting up for breakfast because they want to encourage one another and they, they have their ham and eggs and all that other stuff, scrapple and stuff, and they're sitting there eating all that man food and they're sharing a couple cups of coffee and they're encouraging one another and it's life on life. And that's transformative. And when I hear different ladies getting together and they're enjoying their time over coffee or tea or whatever, and they're, they're doing it. Maybe it's a play date with their kids. And as they're together, they're sharing life and they're building up one another and they're remembering to pray for each other. See, the thing is, this is not just being part of a club or an organization. It's not the garden club. It's not the, the, God, the, the gun and, uh, rod and gun club. It's not just something like that. It's not a political party. It's, it's a community of believers where we share Christ and life in Christ. And you and I can do that. We can take the initiative and instead of waiting for somebody else to come and how come nobody invites me over? How come nobody wants me in their growth group? Why don't you just say, who could I invite? Who could I host? Who could I spend time with? How could I encourage them and how could they bless me in the process and I bless them? Take the initiative. Find a prayer partner. Start your own growth group. Ask Pastor Josh or Jessica Robinson for help on how to do that. I'll e I can even help you if you really need help. <laughs> if you're desperate. But Christ changes lives through community. And if you're not plugged into a community, you're trying to live by yourself and you'll never become yourself by yourself. You need to be in community with others, even if it's not quite right. You know, not the way you like it. You still need to be in community. Now, Gordon McDonald is a pastor that lives and works up in New England. 
and he tells a story in one of his books about how he had friends that were struggling with alcoholism and he wanted to really get an understanding of what goes on in a 12-step program, particularly how it can help somebody who's trying to recover from alcoholism or drunkenness, alcohol abuse. And so he decided on his own to go to some AA meetings and see what it was like, Alcoholics Anonymous. And he says he went to several meetings. There was one meeting in particular that really stood out to him that just floored him. Because in the meeting, there was a young woman who had come for the very first time, and he guessed that she was maybe about 35 years of age. And by looking at her, he could tell that when she was in her early 20s, she was gorgeous. But now, not so much. Her face was swollen, she had bruises, her teeth were rotten, her eyes were bloodshot, her face was puffy, her hair was disheveled and just a total mess, and her name was Kathy. And Kathy started sharing, because that's what you do when you go into a 12-step program. It's not just listening to a lecture or having a psychologist tell you this is what you need to do, but you are transparent and you begin to share with others where you're at on your journey. And how they could help you or encourage you or advise you or pray for you or just affirm you in that. And Kathy began telling her story and she began to say things like this. I lived in, I have lived in five states over the last month. I have slept several nights under a bridge. I have been robbed. I have been raped. I can't hold down a job. I have no money. I'm sick and I'm broken and I can't stop drinking. I want to stop. And by this time, she's just sobbing. I want to stop drinking, but I can't. And beside Kathy was a very large woman by the name of Marilyn. And Marilyn had been sober for 12 years. And as soon as Kathy is saying, I want to stop, but I can't. I want to stop drinking, but I just can't. Marilyn just reached out her arms and just embraced Kathy and pulled her into her bosom and said, it's okay. It's okay. She's just whispering, it's okay. It's okay. You're here with us now. We'll help you. We can get through this together. It's okay. Just keep coming back. Just keep coming back. And we'll get through this. And she's rubbing her back. And she's patting her, holding her, embracing her. And she just leans her head down and gives her a kiss on the head. Now, Gordon McDonald said, I don't know if the church would ever be able to do something like that. Would we ever be a group of people that would be so welcoming to somebody who's so hurting and so broken? Would we even be at a place where, okay, my sin might not be alcoholism, but it might be something else. Am I able to be with other people and be so honest and transparent that somebody could say to me, would I be willing to hear, it's okay, we can do this together, we can get through this, we'll help you, but keep coming back. That's the community that we're talking about. That's the community that every person here desperately needs. And you may think you don't need it. Some of you are saying, I can't start my own growth group. I'm too shy. I can't meet up with a prayer partner. I'm too busy. 
Can I tell you what keeps me away from hanging out with other Christians? Pride. Pride. My pride. I don't want to admit that I'm broken. I want to think that I'm too important to listen to their problems. I don't want to admit that I desperately need their help. And it's my pride that gets in the way. It's my pride that's the spike in the heart that kills community. So unless we're willing to humble ourselves and admit that we need community, we will stay broken, we will stay addicted, we will stay lonely, we will stay lost. We'll never be all that we were meant to be. We'll never be ourselves. And we'll never become all that Christ intends for us to be. That's why community is so important. That's why not only do you need community, but you need to promote community and build community and make it happen by including others in your life and allowing yourself to be included by them. Christ changes lives in community. You will never grow and become all that God has for you until you say, here am I. I want to get involved with others who know Jesus so that we together can share his life and grow. Let's pray together. I thank you, Father in heaven. I thank you for the privilege of being in your presence. And I thank you for just the reminder, the powerful reminder, the community, community is how you change people's lives when we're in relationship with you and each other in Christ. Father, I ask that we would humble ourselves and admit our need for community. I pray that you would help us to see that you came, that you opened the door for us to be in community with you. That we can risk humbling ourselves and honestly admitting our brokenness and our neediness, our loneliness, because you were willing to step into our world to move into our neighborhood, to welcome us into your family. And you did all that because you died on the cross to open that door for us to have a relationship with you. Father in heaven, I pray that we would follow Jesus together for your honor and for your glory. Give courage to us today to invite someone else to spend time with us to take the initiative and not wait to be asked, but Lord, give us the courage to ask and invite them to come and spend time with us. And I pray that we would listen and that we would learn, that we would pray and that we would share and that we would keep coming back to the community you call us to. And I ask these things in the name of Jesus and for his sake. Amen.